All right, folks, good morning. Good to see you. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to the letter of James to the church. We're going to be in chapter 5, starting in verse 13 and finishing not just the chapter, but the book. So this has been a, a pleasure to read this and work through this book together as a church. Hopefully it's benefited many of you. Hopefully it's, been, it's challenged many of you. It's challenged me. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. As you find that, we're going to go ahead and read these out loud together. The words will also be on the screen. If you need to use it, there's a, a Bible down the center aisle underneath the seat. You can grab that or have someone toss it down to you as we're working through the scriptures today together. Let's read these together. Here we go. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to uh, remind ourselves of your goodness to us when we're not good to you, of your faithfulness to us when we're not faithful to you. And uh, Lord, even as we say those words, we we. We tell ourselves we need you. So, Lord, I, I need you in this moment to help me articulate the, some of the complex themes that James is touching on as he ends his letter to the church. Uh, I, I know that our people here need you to open their ears and their hearts to receive what you would have uh, them gain and glean from this passage of Scripture. More importantly, Lord, we need you Uh, in the goodness of your gospel. Uh, Lord, remind us it's, it's not what we do that makes you love us. It's, it's your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to conclude uh, our time in James today. This is our last week, and um, as I unpack uh, the last part of this letter, I, I do want to take a little bit of time and review where we've been. James is the little brother of Jesus. He's Jesus' half-brother, obviously, because Jesus' father wasn't the same father that James had. We learn in Acts that James, somewhere down the line, became an early leader of the church. In fact, James is called a pillar of the church as he led the church. One, on one instance, Paul and Barnabas come to Jerusalem and he reports to James himself. So James is a, a pretty important man, which means that his book, being one of the first books written of all the, old, of the New Testament books, 
would have been uh, a prominent and important book for the church as it grew um, from Jerusalem uh, out to the surrounding areas. James is, although a New Testament book, considered wisdom literature. And in that it's wisdom literature, I mean, he, he basically is giving us like theme after theme after theme. It seems like it's unending. And also because it's wisdom literature, he doesn't give us much explanation. I mean, he says some things, he gives us some commands, and he doesn't give us much explanation in regards to, to what he's saying. So you really have to keep up. But here's what James's goal has been for us throughout the entire letter. He's been trying to guide us in terms of what it looks like to live what we believe. That's what he's trying to do. That's the, that's the coherent theme throughout his, his whole book. Now, James is writing to mostly Jewish Christians who had been dispersed because there was persecution, particularly on Jews and Jewish Christians. And so his wisdom has been the likes of, this is what faith looks like. He says, firstly, um, consider your trials to be a joy because ultimately what a trial is doing is helping you to mature in your faith. And if you can endure through it, persevere through it, uh, you will be all the better. James tells us that we should live as servants rather than demanding to be served. He says a life of faith is not just hearing the word. It's, it's also doing the word. James tells us, don't be judgmental, but extend mercy. He says, walk in works that reveal your faith. What does that look like? He says, it's helping widows and orphans in their plight. James instructs us to watch our mouths, to pursue uh, wisdom, true wisdom rather than false wisdom. He says to us, pursue godliness rather than worldliness. James spends a lot of times challenging us to walk in humility. James doesn't say it's wrong to be rich, but he has some very choice words for those who are affluent in society because he says the propensity is that if you're rich, you're going to take advantage of those who are, are lesser than or you might show preferential treatment. And so he speaks very candidly to those in the community who, who have resources and influence and affluence. Last week, um, James exhorted us that despite the difficulties of life, what, what, what kind of difficulties? Like um, suffering and injustice and persecution, which those things don't go away. He says, walk in patience and steadfastness because of, of one specific thing. He says, the Lord is coming. In fact, the Lord is near. And as he, as he concludes his letter, today he's going to talk, about, talk to us about prayer. And this is unlike most of the, the epistles that you'll read in the Bible. Uh, if you read uh, most of Paul's letters, as he's concluding uh, his writing to whoever he's writing to, most of the time he's giving well wishes. This was, uh, this was a Hellenistic form of writing. They would uh, speak uh, kind words to those as a departing, uh, departing word. And in this case, uh, he offers several things that they are to pray about. Really, my outline for today is... As James is giving his well wishes, his parting thoughts, he not only ends on the topic of prayer, but he begins a series of rhetorical questions. It's like we're in class. James doesn't want us to raise our hand and say, all right, pick me. Um, James already has in mind what he wants to tell us, and, um, and he's going to basically give us some more guidance. Here's some guidance, some situations that you're going to encounter in life and, oh, by the way, here's the solution to those things that you're going to encounter. 
James is giving us commands as he concludes his letter. Uh, these are mostly under the guise of prayer. Uh, four situations, three of them particularly uh, include uh, ideas of prayer, of when we are to pray. At the same time, he's really doing three things. Firstly, he's describing various groups of people and the situations that we encounter for which we should pray. Secondly, he's telling us that when we come to prayer, prayer, that we have to assume a posture of humility, coming to God, but also coming to each other uh, when we pray. And that should be a normal part of, of the church, a normal part of the gospel community. And lastly, James is exhorting us to simply be the church. All right, those are his final words. And the first situation that he says uh, that we should pray in is when we're suffering. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Simple words, right? I mean, have, you've read this before, and this is what crosses my mind when I read this. I mean, why is James telling us that we should pray when we're suffering? Everybody prays when they're suffering, right? Wrong. I mean, I mean that's why he's telling us to pray. It's because a lot of times, even when we're suffering, we don't pray. Um, I think the culture that we live in breeds prideful, uh, independent, self-sufficient people, uh, even in the Christian community. And a lot of times, um, we're given to not pray unless we're pressed to pray. Think about the times that you have had something going on, and there's all these things that you reach for to do to deliver yourself, to save yourself, to make life easier before you actually sit down and, and come to God in prayer. This is what James is suggesting to us. Prayer is, is a lot of times the last thing that we do when we have a problem. And the culture that we live in um, kind of puts this on us. It, it grooms us in this sort of life. And what I found is I particularly have one specific resource that I go to when I have any problem in life. And that resource, I call it my friend. My friend is with me morning, noon, or night. I wake up in the morning, and it's there. I go to bed at night, and I give it a couple checks, and it's there when I need it. Even in the middle of the night, if I need it, it's right there. Guess what that is? You all have one. All right, some, it, it's your cell phone. It, it's more than your cell phone. It's Google. Or some of you all, some of you all use Yahoo or Bing. It's whatever your preferred search engine is on whatever the medium that you might use that search engine. But I mean, Google, Google has us in its hand and we will confer to it before we confer to it. I mean, just yesterday, looking up some words that I had to define for myself in my own sermon. I'm like, did I go to the Bible? No, did I go to God? Lord, tell me what this word means. No, I went to Google. And Google, <laughs> Google was there for me. I mean, that's the first thing that we turn to when we need help, and it reminds us of how independent and self-sufficient that we actually are sometimes, even over um, our supposed dependence on God. But we don't just do this with technology. We do this with other parts of our life. Um, if you have aches and pains, some of you might turn to home remedies. As I was growing up, I don't think our family ever bought any store-bought drugs like pills or, or liquid medicine at all. My grandma, if you had a stomach ache or a rash on your skin or a cold, she was going to give you some castor oil. I have no idea what castor oil does for you, but I do know it's nasty. <laughs> nasty. 
Grandma gave you castor oil. If you don't uh, subject yourself to home remedies, perhaps you are a homeopathic person. You do the, the natural kind of thing. Um, essential oils. There's essential oil for everything, from a rash on your toe to you know a balding head, right? <laughs> there should be an industry. There is an industry of essential oils. There's an industry. All right. I'm going to talk about oil here in a minute. Um, perhaps the new industry is is uh, supplying elders with oil so that they can anoint people who are sick. That would be uh, another venture that the essential oils people can get into. But here's the thing. Sometimes we turn to home remedies. Sometimes we turn to homeopathic remedies. And we do, this, we do these even over against depending on God. We do these over against going to medicine or going to a doctor or even asking your pastor to intervene for you on your behalf. And the way it goes for many of us, um, we got to be really, really sick. Like on my deathbed, I got my lawyer on the phone getting ready to update my will before we'll actually go to God in prayer. I think that's what James is suggesting here. Why is he telling us to pray when we're suffering? Because sometimes we don't pray. Oftentimes the very first thing that we should turn to is the thing that we turn to the last. Puritan Thomas Matton says this. He says, in all circumstances, we should pray. There's not a time when God does not invite us to himself. I love these words. I mean, the Puritans could write, but the Puritans were in, they, were, they knew themselves well. Listen to these words. There's not a time when God does not invite us to himself. And that's really what James is saying. If you're suffering, really, however life is, you're happy, you're glad, or things are tough, when God is inviting us, it's a prayer is a privilege. He's inviting us to him himself, to compute, to commune with himself, more than just the act of prayer and asking for whatever we need. So here's what James says. If you're suffering, and by suffering, he's saying, if you've got anything going on in your life that brings you trouble, just stuff on the job, stuff in relationships, stuff in your neighborhood, stuff in your financial, uh, financial hardships, death of a, a friend, uh, a close relative that leads to grief. What is he saying? He's saying you have the opportunity to, to go to the Lord because the Lord is inviting you to himself. And so the first situation that James uh, alludes to us that we need to pray is when we're suffering. But he also says that individuals should praise when, when life is going well. This is the opposite extreme of the first one. All right, when stuff is hard, all right, go to the Lord in prayer. And then James says, all right, when, you, when life is cheery, you also need to come to the Lord. Particularly, he says, let them sing praise. All right, so we talked about this during our, uh, our rhythms series when we looked at the, the rhythm of worship. So I'm not going to belabor the, the point. But, I mean, obviously, this can be a challenge for some of us. I mean, who? there's only a few of y'all that actually like to sing out loud with other people around. Some of you might dare to sing when you go in the shower. You might dare to sing along with the radio in your car. But truthfully, singing out loud around a whole bunch of people, unless you're at like a, a rock concert, it's kind of weird, right? Especially when you come to church, everybody's facing the same direction. You're looking at a screen. Some people let their hands raise. I mean, who are we singing? What are we doing? What are we singing to? I mean, that's what it feels like. Um, but singing, singing when we're cheerful, James says, is important. 
we should do it. Particularly in James' day, singing, he would be referring to singing the Psalms. And so when he says, when life is cheerful, sing a song, you know, sing praise. He's really saying, sing and pray God's word. Here's what singing praises to God's word does for us. One commentator says this, it digs deep roots. Paul says to the Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's something about singing and praying God's word that gets in us the things that God wants to get in us so that despite our situation, we're able to press through. We're able to be steadfast through any circumstance. That's what he's inviting us to. I particularly like to, to find music, to find um, the, the lyrics of songs that might have a catchy beat, but the lyrics are actually words from Scripture because I, I'm getting the inspired word in me and the, you know, sometimes it's easier to memorize the word of God when you set it to, to music. Here's the second thing. It builds other people up. When we sing, definitely when we come together as a congregation, that's what we're doing. Um, and I know some of you don't, I mean, it can be uncomfortable, but you're encouraging each other with your voices as we're hearing all of us together in close proximity Give praise to God, but also perhaps even confess to Him our confess to God our short uh, our, our how we fall, our short sightedness in obeying His laws, but then ask God to forgive us in the gospel. I mean, and we should be doing that. Whether you can, it doesn't say um, if you got a good voice, come and sing praise to God. James says when when things are cheerful, you got reasons to to praise. Right? Nick was in the, in, in, I mean, we were singing a song, You Alone We Praise. And Nick was singing it, and he was out of tune. <laughs> and, it was, and it was okay, because we've had this discussion before that he can't sing. But here's what I love, that my brother Nick was giving a joyful noise to the Lord, and he was declaring his praise to God out loud, whether he could sing or not. Y'all should stand near to Nick. And be encouraged by his out-of-tune, out-loud singing to the glory of God. Lastly, it strengthens the person, for, the person for trial. It strengthens us for trial. You know, you, you need reach back. You need something to hold on to when life gets rough. And if you don't have the word of God in you, if you don't have a song to sing, how can you sing? Right? James is encouraging us. Get the word in you so that when life is tough, you can pray to God. When life is cheerful, you can sing praise. The third situation that he gives us is when you're sick, you call the elders. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Um, it's obvious when we're sick that we need prayer. What James is adding here is that we also need help. We need help from one another. But particularly, we need help from the elders, the God-ordained servants that God puts in the church to serve as shepherds over his people. And so we go to the elders. And I think two things are important here. First, James says, call the elders. Now, those are words that he uses. Emphasis on the word call. So the 
the, the burden is upon you, the person who is sick, out of humility. Again, James is encouraging us to assume a posture of humility and take the initiative and come to the God-appointed person um, and let them know what your need is. And, and this is what that does for us. It reminds us that we're dependent on God, but that we're insufficient in and of ourselves. We need other people to come alongside us in the church to help us do the very things that God is calling us to do. And so you call the elders. You invite them particularly to come around you in prayer. James also says that we call the elders. I know I just said the same thing. First he says, call the elders. But then he says, call the elders. There is a nuance there. And here's what he's saying. It's cool if you got people that pray eloquently in your life. You should actually call them and, 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 and be encouraged by their eloquent words. It's cool if you have people who have the gift of healing. And there are people like that. They pray for you, and track record shows that they pray for somebody, and the person gets healed. Here's what James says. He says, call the elders. And here's why he says, call the elders. It's, it's because the first qualification of an elder in Scripture is it's not their social status. It's not they know a lot of people or that they're influent or affluent. He says, call the elders not because of their theological acumen, that they know a lot of the Bible. He's going to quote Bible verses to you. He says, call the elders because the first qualification of an elder is their holiness. And don't get freaked out about that word. That word just simply means set apart. They're, they're divinely ordained by God to care for God's people. And so James is not giving us a, a, a higher than he should a perspective of elders, but he's saying if you're a, a called and qualified and ordained elder, God is using you over the flock, and you should, you should entrust your life to those people because their prayers are going to be effective. In fact, he says in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. And we're going to look at this in a little bit of detail in a couple of minutes. But I think he's talking about the elders here. He's talking about all of us. We come not in a righteousness of our own. We come in the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us by trusting in Jesus. But I think James particularly has the elders here in mind. The prayer of the elders is effective. More specifically, when an elder goes to the sick, he goes as someone who has prophetic power. Look at the words he uses here. He says, elders go in the name of the Lord. That's a, a particular phrase that's not used a lot in the New Testament. It's used two times. Here in this verse, and then back up to verse 10 of chapter 5. As an example of suffering, James says in James 5.10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James is equating the duty of an elder, the elder being synonymous with pastor or bishop or overseer. We see those as being the same thing. He's equating it as being equivalent to a prophet who speaks in the name of the Lord, representing God to God's people. I would add that a pastor also stands in the shoes of a priest, right? Interceding for God's people, presenting them and their needs to God. And so James says an elder goes in the name of the Lord. So an elder laying hands on someone is symbolic of their sin, of their sickness, passing away from them through the righteous and the faith of another. 
not necessarily the faith and the righteousness of the elder. The elder has no faith and righteousness of his own. He's standing in the shoes of Christ, parallel to, to Jesus, who, who alone is the true healer of our souls and of our infirmities. But James is putting the elder in, in this stead. The elder is positioned to absorb the plight of the sick person parallel to, to Christ as he absorbs our sin and our sickness. We call this the doctrine of expiation. So what does an elder do? An elder comes in power. He comes in righteousness. He comes in faith. Not a power and righteousness of his own. He's standing in the stead of Christ. Elders come in concern, but they come alongside Jesus as someone who's a physician for people's souls. They come in the name of the Lord because it's only in the name of Jesus that we can be healed anyway. That's why he says, come to the elders. And then he comes to verse 15. Woo! Verse 15. All right, I'm preparing you. All right, so verse 15 is one of the most contested, talked about, complicated verses in all the Bible. There are whole denominations built on verse 15. Let's read it. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Perhaps you've read this verse before. All right, I'm not going to debate it about you. I'm just going to give you my, my perspective. I think the key phrase is the prayer of faith. What is that? I think the prayer of faith is, is two things. Firstly, the prayer of faith is, is a faith that you have in expectation. And, and all of us have uh, expectations about the things that God can do. Say, for example, I, I re, I'm, I'm in a tight spot. I need God to respond to me in a certain way. And your, and your faith is that because God is God and there is no other. And that God can do the impossible. Things that man could not even pretend to do. That if God doesn't do it, it's not going to get done. That's the prayer of faith. But the prayer of faith is also Prayer in reliance and submission to God. And we see both of these in Scripture. Prayer of reliance is, I'm trusting God to be God. I'm relying on His timing. I'm knowing that God's delays aren't always denials of my prayer, but I, I should acknowledge the fact that God does say no to some things that I think I should, that He should answer. So the prayer of faith is, it's not just faith that God is going to heal me. It's faith that says, God, even if you don't heal me, I still trust you. And we need that. We need to receive both of those perspectives of the prayer of faith. And I would here's where it gets hard. Most of us aren't dispassionate about this. Most of you have had people in your life, close friends, loved ones, for which you believe you have offered up a prayer of faith, believed God, fasted, you might have prayed in tongues all kind of stuff, and just believed that God was going to heal a person who was on their deathbed. And maybe that person didn't get healed. This happened in our church this week. Uh, you guys remember Glenn and Wendy, when her Miller? Uh, they were just PCS back you know, from here to, to Hope Mills. One week after they left, Wendy uh, texted me, Jeff, I'm in my car. I've got my two kids with me. I'm headed to New York. My mother is in the ICU. She's on a ventilator. It doesn't look good. And then this past Wednesday, after praying and inviting several people to pray and fast for Wendy's mother, 
Um, God took her. God did not heal Wendy's mother, despite our prayers and our prayer of faith to heal her. For me, it was my, my grandmother. Uh, my maternal grandmother is someone that helped raise me. I credit my grandmother for praying me into the kingdom of God. She was that special to me. And so around 2003 or 2004, um, this is when deployment started, started happening with Operation Iraqi Freedom. And uh, I was deployed three times in like four years. And so I was in and out of, of being home. And my grandmother was diagnosed with stage four cancer. I mean, the cancer, when they diagnosed it, it was like out of nowhere, all over her body. So they did chemo, and uh, it looked like she was getting better, that the chemo was, was helping to um, resist the cancer and even reduce it some. Uh, but then uh, my mom sent me a note, 2005, I can remember the day. I'm sitting at my desk, I was a battalion commander in Iraq, and she told me that my grandmother had died. And what you need to know is behind that, I mean, Everybody on my mother's side of the family, uh, they sing, they group in church. I mean, these are holiness people. I mean, these Pentecostal people who pray with fervor and, and believe God, like no joke. So everybody who was anybody on my mother's side of the family was praying for my grandma, and we believed that God was going to do some great things. God was going to perform a miracle in her body and that she was going to be a living testimony of his goodness, and God did not heal my grandmother. So, I mean, I mean, Who's right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the consternation here. Who's right? When we offer a prayer of faith and things don't turn out the way they should, I mean, should we assume that God doesn't heal? Is the Bible wrong? I mean, what, what, do you take, what do you make of that? I think here's the key. James is giving us, of course, generic examples. These are just situations that you can fit yourself in and you have to contextualize it to yourself. But, but he's pointing to a specific person. He is. Capital P person. Let's read verse 15 again. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Read these verses with me. And the Lord will raise him up. Say it again. And the Lord will raise him up. Those, are, those words are there for a purpose. And the Lord will raise him up. James says, God gets a vote. He's, here's the disposition that he's saying we should have. He's saying we should believe you know, through medicine, surgery, or, or my prayer of faith, Lord, however you do it, I have faith to believe that you're going to, to heal. But even if you don't, I, I trust you. I trust you. And particularly when he says, and the Lord will raise him up, James is speaking to God's sovereignty. We have to trust God's sovereignty. Here's the thing, folks. Prayer is never a command. We can't command God. Have you, have you been praying with somebody and they, they start declaring and decreeing? I'm, not, I'm actually not against that because when a person is declaring, they're, they're, that's not heretical. A person that's declaring something, they're standing on the promises of God. And God promises a lot in Scripture to us. A person that's decreeing, um, what all they're doing is they're saying, Lord, I come in your authority. I have no authority on my own. So it's not wrong to declare and decree. But here's what happens with us. Sometimes we get so fervent that we will declare and decree and think we're telling God what he's going to do. And God can't be told anything. And so be careful when you declare and decree. Be, just be careful with that. Prayer is, is never a command. It's, it's always a, a request. It's us asking God, Lord, by whatever means necessary, please do what I'm asking. Would you heal my loved one? But even if you don't, 
You're God. I'm not. I trust you. And I think sometimes we need to do that. So we pray, pray fervently. That's what James is saying. He's saying pray fervently. We have seen people in our church, our young, small church, heal, right? I mean, God does do that. And faith is a part of that. James is actually encouraging us to believe that God can heal, heal you. But there's an element of faith in it, but we don't put it all on faith. Why? Because God is sovereign, and God's sovereignty is a mystery to us. I mean, we don't know all that we want to know in regards to how God operates in his world. And so don't tell God what you are going to do or what he's going to do. But here's what James asks, and this makes it a little bit more complicated. Look at the latter half of verse 15. He says, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. I mean, my God, what does that mean? These are complicated things James is talking about. Here's what James is is simply saying. He's saying, sometimes you need to look at your sin. Sometimes if you're sick, the very first thing that you might want to do before you look at a physical cause is to look at a spiritual cause. Lord, is there something going on in me for which you've brought this sickness on me? And if there is, Lord, would you convict me enough that I know what the sin is, I can confess it, and then you'll lead me to repentance. Here's the truth. There's precedence in Scripture for this, that there are sins that lead to sickness, but I also love it that that medical science is leading us to believe that there is a connection between stress in our life. Think of chronic worry, Uh, You get an ulcer because you're just like fretting over stuff that's going on that you have no control over. All the ways that we try to control people and the things in our life that are just like giving you even more pain and manifestations of stuff in your body. Medical science is telling us there's a connection between our stress and our illness, the ulcers and disorders that happen when we stress. And it's just confirming what the Bible has already said. What does the Bible say? James is telling us sickness in people, the sickness people might experience might originate in their sin. And so here's the point of the verse. James appears to be saying, sometimes when we repent of sin, God heals us. So my encouragement would be to you, if you're sick in your body, like a serious sickness, before you go to the doctor, before you ask God to even heal you, do a double check. Say, Lord, just to make sure If there's sin in me for which you're trying to get my attention, please wake me up and let me know what that is. Because when we do that, what we're doing is we're allowing God to to work in us as we're, you know, a lot of times introspective in in our pain. Um, So true story, last year, I I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, I preached a series on the Ten Commandments. And I preached on the Sabbath and what you need to know is my family doesn't get, this has got great grace to us, our family doesn't get sick a lot. We might have a little, a, a little cold every now and then. Every once in a while, something else a little bit more serious happens. But, I mean, we've just been blessed by God not to get really sick. I got really sick one, I mean, one Monday morning after I had preached on the Sabbath. And it was a sickness where, I mean, I couldn't have gotten up if I wanted to. I, I didn't eat anything because it, it, it wouldn't stay down. I mean, I had stuff coming out of, like, both, both places that can come out. It was awful. I didn't know if I was going to make it through the week to be able to prep a sermon for the next week. 
Um, and so my prophetic discerning wife comes into the room. She's like, when are you going to learn? It's like, <laughs> you can't preach a sermon on the Sabbath and then expect God, you know, and, and you be the, the main one in the whole church that's like disobeying God. Don't you know God's talking to you through this sickness? And of course, I just dismissed my prophetic discerning wife. It's like, be quiet, woman. You don't know what you're talking about. But I think there was something in it. Now, did I actually go back and pray, Lord, if there's something going on in me for which you brought this illness? Of course, I didn't do that because I hadn't read James at that point. Well, that's likely where, what, very much what was going on. God was trying to get my attention because of all people to preach, you know, stand up in God's pulpit and preach a sermon that you need to obey God and, and observe a Sabbath. The Sabbath is for man, right? It's for us. And then not to actually live that out, that's like sin, like up front in God's face. And God let me know. He let my wife know. My wife told me. <laughs> so practically, all I have to say, this is what James is saying. He's saying, repent, fools. Come on, repent. But he's also saying, invite God into your midst, but also call people into your life. And this leads us to the last situation. The last situation is about community. The community prays for those in sin. Verse 16 through 18. Therefore, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Then he gives us an example of, of how a righteous person has great power that's working through the, the, the prophet Elijah. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. There's a lot here. I think he's talking basically about two things. Here's the first. This is meant to be a summary of all that James has said about prayer from verse 13 to, to, and, and forward. How do I know that? He says, therefore. He's, he's summing up. And the summary is, is this. When you get sick, Pray, but don't always pray by yourself. Invite other people humbly from your gospel community to, to come into your life. Call people to your in life, call people into your life to come alongside you when, when life is tough and actually ask them to pray for you. But he goes one, one step further. He says, Don't just ask them to pray for you. He says, This is also the place you should, you should confess your sins. Now, when he says confess your sins, a lot of people misconstrue this. James is not, in, he's not telling you, go to community group or come into church and blab everything that you've done, good and bad and ugly, to everybody that's there. That's not what he's encouraging us to do. Uh, the, the general rule, biblical principle is, if you sin secretly, you confess secretly. What would that look like? It's, you know, the things that we go through every day. You know, sometimes I envy, sometimes I lust, sometimes I'm prideful, sometimes I get angry. Only once in a while do I, like, lash out with my tongue and say something against someone. And so in those instances, my first priority is I've, I've sinned secretly. I'm going to pray to God and confess my sin, ask him to forgive me and bring me to repentance. If I should, if there's an object to, to which I've sinned, perhaps my wife or one of my kids, then my obligation is to go to them one-on-one -on -one and to work that out so that our relationship is reconciled. Sin secretly, confess secretly. But sin publicly, confess publicly. An example, Paul, 
in Galatians 2, Paul and, Paul and Peter. Peter was a Jew hanging out with the Gentiles, eating bacon. Paul sees it, and then some other Jewish leaders come into town, and then Peter reverts back to Jew Peter. Right? I didn't say that right. That didn't sound right, but you know what I mean, right? And what did Paul do? He said, you hypocrite. How are you going to do that? You're not walking, you're not keeping in step with the gospel. It required a public confession from Peter. This is what he means there. Here's the larger issue that James is bringing up. It's one of fellowship. James is saying if there's a sick and sinning believer in our midst, in the community of faith, then what needs to happen is there needs to be a confession of sin and a forgiveness of sin and then an allowance for that person to come to repentance. And so a sick and sinning believer uh, that's brought to repentance uh, is restored to fellowship. And when that person is restored to fellowship, then we can rightfully come around that, pray, that person and pray for them. And that instance would lead into effective prayer for healing. And then he gives an illustration of what the effective prayer of a righteous person looks like. We don't have time to get into this, but I'll tell you, this is one of my favorite stories. I got a lot of favorite stories in the Bible. But this story in Elijah, firstly, it's funny, it's practical. We get to see one of the most um, powerful prophets in the Bible, I mean, just look weak. I mean, and it reminds us of ourselves. And so I would encourage you, go to 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19 and read this narrative of Elijah. Um, but here's the thing. Elijah's talked about in glowing terms in all the Bible. Um, he, he does the most miracles. He does the most powerful miracles. Uh, think about it. Elijah um, with Moses is standing in the transfiguration with Jesus. I mean, how important can you be to get Jesus to invite you to his, like, his transfiguration? Elijah was the deal, the real deal, right? Well, back in 1 Kings 17, Elijah was weak and, and discouraged. And so this particular thing that, that James brings up was one of the times where the most uh, powerful prophet that we have known in the Bible was not just at his weakest and most discouraged moments. I mean, he was the most depressed. Uh, God has sent Elijah to uh, encounter Ahab, the most evil king for Israel in the northern tribe. And oh, by the way, Ahab is married to what I think history will, um, will conclude was the most evil woman ever, Jezebel. So parents, especially you ladies that are pregnant, if you're having a girl, do not name her Jezebel. Seriously, because you will do no service to her and people will look at you weirdly, especially if you read the Bible. And so um, I, I can't get into it, but here's the thing. When Elijah was weak and discouraged, even to, I mean, God had done some great miracles and I mean, through Elijah praying and the rain stopping for three and a half years. And he did that because Ahab, God was... Elijah was sent to Ahab to tell him, hey, you're disobedient to God. Either follow Baal or follow the Lord. But if you know the Lord is God, then follow him. And Elijah did that. The rain stopped and it stopped for like three and a half years. I mean, who can do that? But then because Elijah is weak and feeble like us, um, he went and hid. He was discouraged and, um, and he feared for his life from Ahab and Jezebel. And then Elijah, uh, James sort of tells us 
um, God came through for him uh, by um, getting Elijah to pray again, um, answering his prayer, turning the rain back on. But here's the point. James is saying we're like Elijah. Here's what I like are, are James' words. He says, um, where did I find it? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Here's, here's the picture he's painting. I mean, Elijah was the greatest prophet in, in the Bible. I think he was, other than Jesus. But he's saying he's not focusing us on um, his greatness. He's saying he's just like you. And, and what are you like? Well, we're prophetic. We do some great things for God at times. But then there's other times that we're woefully pathetic. Pathetic. We have no faith in God. We couldn't give a prayer that an ant would cross the road without getting crushed by you know, the tire of a, of, a, of a car. That's who we are. And Elijah is saying, that's all it takes for you to be a righteous person whose prayer has great power as it's working. That's all it takes. You don't have to be a great prophet. You just have to be like Elijah, willing to admit, you know, I'm weak, I'm discouraged, and, and God, if you don't come and help, this, what you want to get done, it's not going to get done. And here's the cool thing that James is pointing out. You know what? Surrounding us are a whole bunch of people just like Elijah, just like Elijah. We're righteous not because we do great things. We're righteous because God has imputed that to us. He's given it to us simply for uh, putting our faith in Jesus. We stand where we are only by the grace and the goodness of God. And the people around us are these types of people that we need to be confessing our sins to. You need these people around in your life. I'm going to finish up in verse 19 through 20. That's where James finishes it up. It sounds like he is taking a different turn and giving us, I mean, like some, I mean, this is like out of nowhere, but really all James is doing as he's finishing his letter is returning to a theme that he's already covered before. And the particular theme is simply that we need to confront each other. This is an issue for the church. If we're going to be the church, then these are the things that the church does. And as we're dealing with sin, we should be confronting each other. And so he welcomes us to do that. The beautiful thing about the church, it's, it's ugly and it's beautiful, is that we're all sinners. And when we stray as sinners, we have people who are fellow strugglers along the road that can bring us back. He's encouraging when you see a fellow struggler Along the journey, you have the opportunity to not just confront them, but to invite yourself into their process and walk along with them, helping them to, uh, to recover, to reconcile both to the community of faith, but also to God. And so particularly with this, this last point, here's what James is encouraging. If, if you're not actively confessing your sin to other people, if you're not actively confronting people's sins and love, then we're not being the church. We might be coming to church, but we're not acting like the church that God has caused his son to die for. That's it. James doesn't say anything else. I mean, he doesn't say toodles. He doesn't say goodbye. He doesn't say I love you in the grace of the Lord. He just he finishes like that. I mean, what do you do with that? It's like, come on, James, give me something to work with. I got I to gotta tell the people how to end this. Here's how we end this. Practically, some of you perhaps have a sickness 
in your body, a sickness that you don't know what to do with, that medical science hasn't given you a cure for. And I would encourage you um, to call the elders of our church. There's two, me and John Scott. And of course, uh, Nick is an elder. He's, he doesn't get a vote, but he's an elder. Um, I would encourage you to call the elders of our church and to have us pray a prayer of faith over you that, that God might heal the sick, anoint you with oil even, and we will do that here today. If you have some sickness in your body, we'd love to pray for you after the service. Some of you here need to grab somebody that you know and that you trust and confess your sins to them. Everybody can't handle your sin, and you need to be discerning about who you confess to. You shouldn't confess to everybody, but some of you need to get some stuff off your chest that you've confessed to no one. And the person right next to you might be the person that you should do that with. Some of you need to resolve to pray more in your circumstance. Don't suffer and not pray. And then some of us need just, just need to be the church. We need to be involved in each other's lives, seeing things that aren't quite right in the course of Scripture, pointing it out, and then instead of just like saying, hey, you're wrong, walking along someone and helping them to be restored to the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for these hard words from James. And I pray firstly for those in this room um, to whom these words may have just like went in, in, in one ear and out the other. Uh, they're just grasping for faith and haven't quite landed on it yet. I pray that you would make your words to their hearts clear. In fact, more than preaching to their mind, God, would you preach to their heart, speak to their heart, and um, by your spirit, open up um, these words that they might fall on um, ground that can be sown into. God, we pray for salvation and faith for those who are in our midst who don't know you. God, I pray uh, for, uh, for those who need to grow in their prayerfulness. All of us could use a little bit more prayer. And this is not uh, a have to, it's a get to. We get to be in your presence. You invite us, Lord, through prayer to yourself. And so I pray that you would do that today for all of us. Some of us here today um, need to confess sin. I pray that you would give us courage to walk into the light. And lastly, Lord God, I pray that you help us be the church, the church that Jesus died for. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.